All financial advice provided on this show is for entertainment and educational purposes only. The financial ideas and strategies discussed are only provided as a starting point for a conversation about money matters. With regard to your particular investments and financial strategies, consult your financial planner, CPA, or investment professional. All your financial decisions are yours and yours alone to make and subsequently are solely your responsibility. The information that is supplied through the context of the radio program and any repurposing of its content by the host or network is a combination and collection of solid financial investment understanding, opinion, and comments. This network, show, and its hosts are not liable for financial strategies, outcomes that you employ in any manner that result in any kind of loss. Shares of corporate sponsors may be the subject of buy or sell recommendations in Jay Taylor's newsletter in accordance with Jay's objective opinion. Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. This hour will help investors fix issues and achieve personal gain. Now, here's your host, Jay Taylor. Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor, and I'm speaking to you on this uh, January 3, 2017. This is the first business day of 2017. I'm happy that you are with me and uh, so that I can take this opportunity to wish you all a happy, healthy, peaceful, and prosperous new year. I do like to remind you each and every week that I am also the author of a newsletter called Jay Taylor's Gold Energy and Tech Stocks. And you can subscribe to my letter by going to miningstocks.com, miningstocks.com, or you can call our office during normal work hours here in New York, and that number is 718-457-1426, 718-457-1426. Regarding Chen Lin, I need to tell you that uh, my company, Taylor Hard Money Advisors, is no longer providing subscription fulfillment services for Chen. So to sign up for Chen's letter, you need to go to chenpicks.com. That's Chen, P-I-C-K-S dot com. Chen and I will remain friends and informal partners. We will continue to share investment ideas with each other. And Chen will appear on this radio show from time to time. I have the highest regards for Chen, his intellect, his work ethic, his honesty. He has been a wonderful friend and partner, and I hope to an extent listeners uh, from this show can benefit from his insights from time to time. Of course, uh, to benefit fully from Chen, you do need to go to his, uh, to sign up for his letter, chenpicks.com. Chenpicks.com is where you need to go to sign up for Chen. I want to thank each of you for listening to this show, and uh, I want to encourage you to continue sending along your questions, uh, comments, criticisms, and praises to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. Questions, the number four, taylor at gmail.com. And I uh, would also uh, like to invite you to follow me on Twitter. My handle there is jtaylormedia. Um, we do want to thank our sponsors for making this show economically viable. Our sponsors for today's show are Dynasert. Um, are on resources and Novo resources and uh, uh, Dynasert. In fact, the uh, the CEO for Dynasert will be with me. Jim Payne will be with me in a little while to talk about that company's technology, which is reducing fuel consumption uh, in automobile, well, in trucks primarily right now, in major large scale vehicles, uh, reducing the fuel consumption by uh, up to twenty percent and reducing carbon emissions as well. So it's a it's a story I think that has. Great potential, and we'll look forward to talking to Jim Payne um, very shortly after the first commercial break. I've titled today's show, uh, Market Outlook for 2017, and Alistair McLeod will be uh, with me at half past the hour. Michael Oliver is with me right now, and we'll hear from him in just a brief moment or two. And Jim Payne, as I mentioned, uh, the president and CEO of Dinosaur, will be with me 
after the first commercial break. Uh, with optimism surrounding Trump's election, stocks have made new highs with the Dow uh, nearing 20,000. But once the Trump honeymoon is over and reality sets in, what will be the direction for stocks, bonds, commodities, and currency markets then? As debt grows exponentially compared to a linear growth of income, if income is growing at all, I might add, something has to give. Now, some analysts suggest that no matter how much money is printed, that we are heading for another 1930s-style deflationary economy because the massive debt will simply overwhelm any new money creation. I'd say that uh, Dan Oliver is one of those that might think along those lines. We've had a few other people from time to time on this show as well. Others, like John Williams, who's been on this show, see a dollar collapse from some loss of confidence in the Fed or in the dollar, uh, basic U.S. dollar hegemony. Uh, they see that as leading to a major inflationary problem. And, uh, well, we're going to hear what Alistair McLeod thinks, um, which of those directions he may be leaning and what he thinks uh, might be in store for us in the major markets during 2017. As I said, one bright story that I see, though, is the dinosaur story, uh, and there they are reducing, as I mentioned, consumption, fuel consumption for trucks up to 20%. Now, if we are in a bull market for, for, um, uh, for energy and other uh, fuels and commodities in general, then I would think uh, fuel consumption would certainly be something that people are going to pay more attention to. But we're, we'll hear what Jim Payne has to say after the first commercial break, but right now, I'm really pleased to tell you that Michael Oliver is with me, and uh, thanks for joining me again, Michael. Great to be back, Jay. Always good to talk to you. Uh, early last year and even late into 2015, as I recall, your momentum work began to point to some secular changes in major markets, and indeed, to a great extent, they have come to pass. For example, you predicted that commodities uh, would start a new bull market led by precious metals, and Right on the mark, you were last year, Michael. That certainly is true. turned out to be true. Gold led the way, and then we started seeing other commodities rise considerably last year as well. You predicted that uh, major sovereign debt markets would also start to run into some trouble and start a long bear market, and that also seems to be panning out with T-bonds cracking through some key levels. And on the downside, the Bund and the Japanese uh, bonds and so forth. I think you've also mentioned, uh, uh, probably with a lot of emphasis, the Italian debt markets as well. At this point, however, the other two major tectonic plates that you talked about, namely stocks and the dollar, have not yet seemingly turned, well, they haven't yet turned negative. So my question to you is, uh, how are things looking to you at this point as we start 2017 for those major markets that you, uh, that you talk to us about so frequently? Well, I suspect when you go back, uh, let's say the end of this coming year, and you look back over the last two years, 2016 and 17, you're going to see that in 16, the first two categories did make their shift. But they the, remember, the T-bonds only broke down, according to our metrics, in October. So it's late 2016. And by breakdown, I mean in price, therefore yields rise. Gold uh, was a leader on the upside in February, exploded, pulled back sharply to a level that we regard as key support, and so far it's held it uh, within literally, I, I, I defined a number where I was going to go neutral, and it stopped $4.40 in front of it. <laughs> so, and, and now since we, we've bounced quite sharply. Uh, 
But I do think that the commodity upturn is underway. It's measurable. And it's not just gold, silver, and oil. There's some other markets as well. I think the grains will engage next year, even the meats. So it will be a broad turn. But the other two markets that are most deceptive, <clears throat> you have to realize that they really aren't going anywhere uh, meaningfully for an investor or for a pension fund or anything of the sort, the stock market. Again, U.S. stocks are up but relative to other developed market stock indices, they're, no, they're like in a different universe. The S&P has marginally climbed since late 2014. A couple percent here, a couple percent there, such that it's up about 6-7% above the highs of 2014. Now, you know, that's 24 months, and, and you're, you're fighting over percentages. You know, you could mm-hmm. have a bad day and wipe it out. Right. So the real bull market in the, in the S&P was between late 2011 and late 2014. After that, it basically was sputtering, holding mm-hmm. and making new highs, but sputtering. Mm-hmm. Uh, the same is true with the dollar. The dollar peaked in early 2015, dollar index I'm speaking of. Uh, it hit a target that we had. We were bullish on the dollar from 2012 onward. We expected to see 100 on the index. It hit 100 in early 2015, and then sputtered sideways for a year and a half, two years. Recent upside action has taken out that high by all of about 2% or 3%. Right now it's at 102 area. So two years later, the dollar is up 2% and people are yelling dollar bull. Mm-hmm. I, think they, I think they need to have a better perspective. Mm-hmm. From our point of view, both the S&P and the dollar look very similar when you look at very long-term momentum charts. Mm-hmm. I suspect they will both turn together downside. Mm. Uh, for the dollar index, which is at 102, it better not drop to 99 or lower during the coming mm. year. Now, that's to say don't sneeze. <laughs> the S&P is at 2240, uh, 50 area. Uh, been in the 30s, I think, last week. Uh, it better not get down near 2200, especially not 2180 level. So we're talking 2 to 3%. It better not sneeze. Mm-hmm. If it does, I think those two asset categories will then engage the other way, downside, uh, um, in, in coincidence with the major trend changes, not in coincidence, but months later, of uh, commodities upside and bonds to the downside or yields to the upside. So I think these four major asset categories are all on the cusp. Two of them most people would recognize as having turned. The other two are on the fence post. Uh, mm-hmm. Not in our view, but in, in most people's view, and that's stocks and dollar. So our focus is on those two markets right now. And we'll okay. find our numbers and our reports, and there's not much room for any sneezing whatsoever in those markets this coming year. Otherwise, we have a four-asset category trend change. Mm-hmm. All right, and Michael, just uh, briefly with a, with a little more than a minute left, mm-hmm. um, with respect to the T-bond, you said you sort of expected a counter-trend rally. Mm-hmm. Uh, I guess as the equity markets decline, you expect money to flow into the T-bonds, probably into gold as well, mm-hmm. uh, before the T-bonds resumes uh, their decline. Uh, do you see, still seeing it that way, and, and you yes. see gold then as continuing with an uptrend? Though? Yeah, I think this is an, uh, a linkage that is uh, temporary, but I see a very strong linkage between uh, the T-bonds to the downside recently and gold back to the downside, not a bear trend, but to a sharp pullback. In the case of bonds, mm-hmm. it started a bear trend. But it looks like bonds are due for a very sharp, short-term uh, counter-trend rally. I call it counter-trend because the annual momentum trend of bonds is now down. So uh-huh. the rally you get is a trading rally. But, you know, mm-hmm. those things happen. You know, where mm-hmm. you get a rally that's opposite the real direction. 
But I think that's, a, if you look, look what's happened to the S&P the last week or so. We dropped about 40 points from high to low. Right. What did the T-bonds do? They rallied about three points, and I think there's more to come. Mm-hmm. Uh, and gold has rallied $40 during mm-hmm. that same time. So, right. yes, I, I do think the T-bond rally is somewhat indicative of positive euro, positive gold, and negative S&P. Uh, and that's on the, on the short-term basis. Mm-hmm. So for the long term, uh, let's say by the end of this year, you would predict, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, we'll probably see lower bond prices, lower equity prices, higher commodity prices, higher precious metals prices, and, and a weaker dollar, I guess. Correct. That's, okay. that's our assessment. <laughs> that's, uh, that's what we uh, should be looking forward to. And well, what I really appreciate about your work, Michael, uh, on an ongoing basis is that it helps me. Uh, keep my feet on the ground and understand uh, where I should be in the markets. You've been very reliable, very helpful. And for my listeners, it's MSA, OliverMSA.com, OliverMSA.com to learn more about Michael's work and to sign up for his work. Uh, it, uh, if you, you know, if you're an investor of any size, uh, a significant size, uh, you may want to consider signing up for his work because he has been incredibly helpful to me and I think to many of you. So thank you very much, Michael, for being with us and a happy new year to you. We'll look forward to talking you, to you next week. Audience. Thank you very much. All right. Thank you very much. Well, folks, don't go away. We're going to be right back after the commercial break with Jim Payne of Dynasert. And, um, well, uh, he has a very interesting story uh, to tell. I think it's a stock that has great potential. Uh, I purchased a few shares myself this morning. Uh, very much a believer in this company, so stick around and hear what Jim Payne has to say. We'll be right back. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. Oren Resources is a Canadian-based gold exploration company focused on the company's flagship Committee Bay project located in northern Canada, one of the best mining jurisdictions in the world. The company's current resource outlined by drilling thus far stands at 1.1 million ounces of gold at over 8 grams per ton. Oren is operated by the same team that founded Asanko Gold, which is constructing a major gold mine in West Africa, and Caden Resources, which was recently purchased in November for over $200 million. The Voice America Live Events page is here now to showcase your corporate, individual, or organization's live event. Visit voiceamerica.com forward slash live events to see all of our past live events and find out more. Whether it's a multi-day conference, special speaker, or single-day event, we've got everything to make your event a success. We can do a few hours or a few days. For more information about taking your event to the next level, call Jeff Spinard at 480-294-6417 or email info at voiceamerica.com. Again, that's Jeff Spinard at 480-294-6417 or send us an email to info at voiceamerica.com. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. You're 
You're listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number four, taylor at gmail.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor, and I'm really pleased to have with me once again Jim Payne. He's the president and CEO of Dinosert Inc. And Dinosert Inc. is a company that uh, has a proprietary product. Uh, it's a, an add-on for trucks that's currently being applied uh, that reduces uh, fuel consumption very significantly and also uh, reduces carbon emissions very significantly. So it's a company that has gained a considerable amount of favor among the uh, the Canadian government uh, and people who care about their environment. It's also a company that I think is going to gain a great deal of favor among companies that want to reduce their fuel consumption and save money as a result of it. So I'm really pleased to have Jim with me again. Thanks, Jim, for joining me today. Thanks, Jay. It's always a pleasure. Always good to talk to you, and uh, I, for the sake of people that may be not familiar with your company, uh, can you perhaps just explain to us a little bit about the technology, uh, you know, how it works, and, um, you know, in lay terms, uh, and, and how significant has it been uh, in terms of um, your trials and in terms of third-party verification now of uh, fuel, saving on fuel consumption? Sure. Uh, first of all, uh our technology, we call it the hydrogen. The hydrogen is a very unique uh, patent-pending unit that is uh, it's a fully computerized on-demand electrolysis system. What we do is we essentially take distilled water and we uh, convert it into pure hydrogen and pure oxygen. And what we, what we really do is, is we separate the gases, and that's something that really does separate us from, from the rest and takes us you know, much farther ahead than where this company was years ago. But, so by introducing pure hydrogen and pure oxygen in trace amounts to mm-hmm. a combustion engine, and primarily it's diesel engines we're working with, it does enhance the burn. It uh, enhances the burn t- to the point where it, uh, it gives much cleaner, a much cleaner burn. It reduces the fuel economy, increases the torque, extends the, mm-hmm. en- the engine oil life, and the reduction in emissions. Um, now, what really even makes us even that much more special is, you know, in the last year, we spent a lot of time and a lot of money developing what we call the smart ECU, and this is also patent pending. The smart ECU, it is, uh, it is the brains behind our technology. It communicates with the engine's onboard computer, and it's, not, it's, it's just like a smartphone. It, uh, it's learning all the time. So as it, mm-hmm. it's learning the, the habits of the truck, the altitude, the conditions, the humidity, so many different things, because one thing we learned over the years, it, there is what we call a sweet spot. Now, that sweet spot means there is just the right amount of gases being introduced to enhance the burn. Too much hydrogen or too much oxygen does just the opposite. But with a smart ECU... It, like I said, it's communicating with the onboard computer of the truck. It's learning. It's altering the flow of gases. So it is changing the flow of gases as the vehicle is running. It, this is huh. real-time, on-time changes. Wow. 
And was that technology uh, in play as you had your your third party uh, verification recently? Um, was that technology in play then? Because your results have been quite good. It was in play. Now it uh, we had it as a prototype at that point. Uh, we did uh, we did go through third party validation. We also went through 20 straight hours of, of testing transport trucks on on dynos and all the wind conditions. It was a wind tunnel. It's mm-hmm. the most sophisticated uh, piece of equipment. There's only two of these in the world, and this one is at the Ontario Institute of Technology. Mm. Um, you know, but yes, there we verified our technology. It showed up to 19.2% improved fuel economy. It mm-hmm. reduced the greenhouse gases up to 40%, and the uh, and, and the uh, heavy carbons by up to 65%. So, wow, a huge, huge difference in in the uh, in the emissions. So there could be some benefits uh, aside from fuel savings for for trucks and for other vehicles, I suppose, in time. Uh, not only from the fuel savings, but also from uh, carbon taxes, if, if that's in play in the future? No, you're absolutely right, Jay. And that's the other thing with our smart ECU. Uh, this is GPRS. It has built-in GPRS capabilities, which allows a smart ECU to be accessed by companies and licensed end users so they can track, monitor, uh, not just the fuel savings and everything. It's, it's much like a fleet management system but it's also collecting the data and converting it to carbon credits. All right. Um, and I guess what this does is uh, this uh, smart ECU um, technology will allow you then on an ongoing basis to track the performance of your technology. I mean, it, it will be like, it will be like a, a, an ongoing verification uh, process or, or tech, uh, data points that you'll have that will allow you to know uh, how well you're doing, how well, com- and then companies themselves will be able to determine how well uh, your technology is helping them. That's exactly right, Jay. Actually, what we've done is we've developed a new back office, and there will be a small monthly fee for end users, like you know, large fleet owners. Not they, uh, they all have their own fleet management systems, but this this encompasses this takes a fleet management system to a whole new era, and it it does exactly like you said. It it is. Measuring the fuel economy, the fuel improvements, the emissions, and everything else that a fleet management does. But this gives them real-time live data. You know, for a small monthly fee, that we've created a portal where they go in and they can gain access at any given time to any one of their trucks, log it, track it, know exactly what's going on. All right, your your focus has been up to this point. Um, yeah, I think retrofitting trucks uh, for big diesels, uh, diesel engines, um, and and I want to ask you about some other applications first. But can you give us a sense of the size of the markets uh, for the for your hydrogen project? Oh, for sure. I mean, you know, just here in North America, there's north of two million Class Eight trucks. Now that's the transport trucks. Then there's three times that many in the Class Six and Seven trucks. Like that's the delivery size trucks. So those are the trucks that we're targeting. It's everything from the Class 6 to Class 8 trucks. Uh, like I said, so here in North America, you know, we're talking you know, tens of millions of these. And then you get into the um, well, India market, for an example. We've got a new dealer in India, and the India market is actually three times the size of the North America. And then you start looking globally. I mean, we're talking 
you know, millions and millions, because there's actually 15 million diesel engines per year produced globally. Mm. Well, so it's a sizable market, and you've had third-party verification, I guess, the, uh, the Canadian government or the Quebec government, is that right? It is with the Ontario government. It's the Ontario uh-huh. Institute of Technology yep. uh, University uh, within here in Ontario, yes. Now, how are you going to be marketing this product? Do you, do you have, uh, are you anticipating, do you have sales now, Jim? Or will we be hearing about that sometime soon? Jay, you'll be hearing about it very soon. Uh, we've got, as we'd previously announced, we've got a new manufacturing facility. It is up and running now. We've got our first 500-unit uh, production run being completed. It's expected to be shipped by the first week of February. So we will be announcing that. And then, uh, then as far as the production, we're expecting to ramp the production up with capacity in that existing facility to 6,000 units per month by the end of the second quarter of this year. Wow. Okay. And, and you feel that the demand is out there, your uh, distribution system is in place so that you can actually sell that many units by the second quarter of this year? Distribution, uh, there is, you know, we've already got pre-qualified dealer network here in North America and the India market, and we're actively interviewing strategic sales firms in both uh, in different regions across North America and Europe with direct contacts to the local transportation, heavy equipment, and power generation firms. Uh, we're getting calls from around the globe, Jay. I mean, since we have announced the the validation of a product. The only thing that's been holding us back was getting the final smart ECU. I mean, like it, it, it was developed. Uh, we had to go through a certifications, uh, through a few different certifications standards because, like I said, it's, not, it's no different than a smartphone. I mean, this thing is communicating and sending data worldwide instantly. So, you know, we mm-hmm. would not sell or put a product out until we had that, until it was final certification. And you have that now. So, I, as I understand it, your your uh, plant up there in Toronto would produce, as you just said, six thousand units a month. I guess you'll start out with one uh, with one shift uh, and produce two thousand units, and then as uh, as the market demand is there, you'll ramp up to up to up to three shifts per day. Well, that's the way we initially targeted. But we've actually set up a production line where we can handle six thousand units a month. Uh, so, um, you know, obviously, I mean, we will not mass produce without sales. Sure. Uh, you know, we are certainly not producing these things just to put them on the shelf. All right. Um, just briefly, with another minute or two left here, Jim, can you talk about uh, some of the other applications? I mean, uh, where do you see, first of all, I guess maybe we shouldn't be thinking in those terms, because if you talk about tens of thousands of trucks, uh, that seems like that's that's quite a nut to crack right there. You you have a potential growth that is amazing, I think, just in that basis. But I know uh, that you're also excited about some other applications, uh, cars, uh, but ships, I think, and generators for remote locations, that sort of thing. Can you take a minute or two to talk to us about those applications and how far down the road might they be before you start to think about or actually uh, start to try to meet those market demands? Well, as far as, and you're right, I mean, you know, the markets we're looking at is uh, we've now got it, we've now got the trucking industry handled. We're just ready to, to put, this, put these things out, but it is now 
shipping rail in large stationary generators. Uh, you know, it's something we've already done some preliminary work on. Uh, we, ha- we have just set up, you know, a new R&D plant for that. Uh, we have, you know, a substantial amount of government support here in Canada, both federally and provincially. So, you know, as we move into that arena, you know, our anticipation is that we will, you know, spend like the next year and a substantial amount of money to get this thing done and get it right now because you get into the shipping, I mean, that's a huge market. You get into the rail, like the trains and stuff like that. We've got train companies already lining up wanting product, we don't, uh, which we don't have ready for them yet. But uh, And then you talk about cars. Uh, the car market or the small automotive market was not initially a market we were looking at at penetrating, but there certainly became a need with uh, with diesel cars and, and emissions. So we took it on just as a pet project. We built a small unit. Uh, we have it currently being tested uh, down in the university down in the states, um, and it's not the, it's not a market that we would look to be building. If anything, you know, I, I would dare say we proved this technology. Uh, we would likely do a licensing agreement with the end users where they could uh, build this into their own vehicles. Because as okay. we know, in the diesel car industry right now, there is some serious issues with the emissions. Sure. All right. Well, just, just briefly here, um, with this kind of growth ahead, I know it requires a great deal of working capital and, and capital in general. How is your balance sheet and, and how, how are you um, set for financing this growth? That's a good question. I mean, the, the company is virtually a debt-free company now, and we are very well funded. We're sitting with, with several million dollars in the bank, uh, although, as we all know, you can go through that very quickly. Uh, the nice thing is, as we move into the sales, <clears throat> excuse me, we get purchase orders for trucks. They come with a 25% deposit. That 25% mm-hmm. deposit pretty much covers our nut. So I'm not overly concerned as far as, you know, the financing for for the trucking industry. Obviously, for the research and development, uh, that is something that we're pursuing government funding for and government support for. And um, But yeah, as far as the trucking industry, I mean, it would be, you know, quite a self-sustaining uh, business venture. One thing I failed to ask you about, Jim, I don't know if you can uh, talk about this. I, if you have some sense of what your margins are, you just mentioned the 25% down payment uh, basically uh, provides a good part of your cost. Uh, your sense of what you might be able to do on the margin side per unit of those uh, upwards to 6,000 units per month? Jay, we work on a 60% gross margin. So it, I uh, see. You know, it is, it's a very healthy margin, but uh, uh, as you know, I mean, there's been $30 million spent to get us to, get us to yeah. where we're at. So yeah. you know, it's, it's, it's time to see a little bit of payback, I think. Right. Well, I, I think payback, certainly the market seems to be anticipating it. The shares have traded up beautifully from around $0.10 cents earlier this year to $0.80 cents now. But if uh, if the kind of growth you're talking about is there, Jim, I think $0.80 cents will look like a very inexpensive stock sometime in the future. Time will tell. Uh, you know, the proof will be in the pudding, as they say, but it certainly does look exciting. I want to thank you, Jim, for being with us, and we'll look forward to keeping up with you in the future. So thank you very much. Thank you, Jay. It's always a pleasure. 
All right, folks. Well, we do have to go to break now, but don't go away because coming up next, Alistair McLeod of Gold Money will talk to us about his views of the markets as we head into 2017. Well, we've actually, we're in 2017 today. The markets are starting out uh, pretty strongly, at least for the things that we follow on this show. So Alistair McLeod will be right back after the break, so don't go away. business community's first choice in internet talk radio voice america business network novo resources focuses on the exploration and development of gold projects its flagship asset is the beaton's creek gold project in western australia where it is currently processing a 30,000 ton bulk sample novo also controls 100 percent interest in the blue spec gold antimony project where it is conducting a 10,000 meter drill program the company has over 7 million in cash and enjoys strong shareholder support from the likes of eric sprott and newmont mining it trades in canada and the u.s under the Symbols NVO and NSRPF, respectively. Dynasert is a global leader in carbon emission reduction technologies. Created for use in diesel engines, the hydrogen unit has been proven to reduce carbon emissions by up to 40%, increase torque, improve engine oil quality, and provide up to 19% in fuel savings. Our leading edge technology is designed for tractor trailers, rail, marine, and newly developed for diesel engine cars. Reducing the amount of greenhouse gases provides benefits to the environment, to communities and businesses, and to our shareholders. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. Listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1 866 472 5790. That's 1 866 472 5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number 4, Taylor at gmail.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor, and I'm really pleased to have with me once again Alistair McLeod. Uh, Alistair is a senior fellow at the Gold Money Foundation, uh, and his weekly articles written for Gold Money are posted at goldmoney.com, and I strongly suggest you go there, uh, check out uh, what Alistair is doing, and, and other people as well, but Alistair's articles are, are really, really worth uh, really worth reading and and thinking about, and that's why we have him with us today to talk about um, what might happen in 2017 from his perspective. Thanks for joining me again, Alistair, and Happy New Year to you. That's my pleasure, and Happy New Year to you and all your listeners. Thank you very much. Um, you know, I'd like to refer to your article titled Outlook for 2017, and then if, to the extent uh, we have time also, Credit Cycles and Gold, another one you wrote. And still another one, Trump, Russia, and China, and and so many things that you you write every week that are that almost always I uh, take a, one of the, take a link to those articles and put them at uh, miningstocks.com because I want people to, to read them. Uh, as you note, the stock market rose very sharply late late in the year, especially after Trump won. There seems to be a great deal of optimism 
that has surrounded uh, Trump's election, uh, at least among some people. There seems to be this sense that if we only uh, exercise more fiscal stimulus, uh, that everything will be all right. There doesn't seem to be any concern about bigger amounts of debt. Uh, It seems as though people really believe that uh, we can have our cake and eat it too, and life is going to just be honky-dory with Donald Trump. But you point out that that may not necessarily be true. What what might happen to us, uh, Alistair, when this honeymoon is over? Can you can you talk a little bit about uh, your views for 2017 in light of uh, in light of what Donald Trump has facing him? Yes, certainly. Um, if you look back over the last 18 months or so, uh, you will see that um, bank credit has actually been expanding. Now, this tells us that the U.S. economy Uh, has been recovering um, and is no longer in recession. We now have a situation where, with that recovery having um, been uh, over a year uh, in gestation, uh, we are probably moving towards a situation where there is um, capacity constraints, if you like, on much further growth. Nobody's talking about capacity constraints yet, and I can understand why, because it's the sort of thing you talk about when you actually see them. Now, having said that, uh, we've got this economy which has um, actually been uh, developing quite nicely, um, courtesy of very low interest rates, courtesy of um, uh, the banks, if you like, moving money off the Fed's balance sheet and using it to gear up to lend to the non-financial sector. Uh, And um, now we have um, uh, President Trump coming in and he's going to apply a business-like approach to things. He's going to um, cut taxes. He's going to cut the uh, public spending. He's going to encourage infrastructure investment and all the rest of it. Now, all this is absolutely fine. But the problem is it's coming in at the stage of the cycle where interest rates are not only rising, but they're going to have to rise considerably more. Now, that to me is the big danger. We've seen uh, in the bond market uh, an early indication that this is becoming a danger. If you look at the way the price of the uh, 30-year U.S. Treasury has performed, it has actually fallen very, very sharply over the last two months. Admittedly, in recent days, it has, um, you know, it has recovered a little bit. But that, to me, is um, a warning that with sick bond markets, if you're going to start um, introducing this fiscal stimulation on top of what we already have, then we're going to rapidly run into a situation where with um, uh, capacity constraints, with supply uh, blockages, prices are going to start rising a lot more sharply than anyone actually thinks is possible. So this is a dangerous time. Um, you referred to my article also on, um, on, on uh, credit cycles. Credits, right. Uh, and what is very interesting, and there was um, a, a, an absolute genius in the London gilt market back in the, in the 1960s called Gordon Pepper. And he uh, was fascinated to um, discover that the banks all, almost always lost money when they dealt in the gilt market. And basically what happened was when they had spare capacity on their balance sheet because there was a recession and they were keen not to lend any more money, they associated bank lending with risk, they would park their spare liquidity in short-term gilts. And these are gilts of up to five years maturity. 
Inevitably, when they did that, they were buying at the top of the market. <laughs> when they felt confident enough to lend because there was an economic recovery and there might have been some takeovers, there's a bit of rationalization, all this sort of stuff that gets the financial community um, uh, involved again with the, with the basic economy, um, the, uh, the banks would have to sell their gilts in order to create the liquidity to lend to corporations. And guess what? By then, of course, um, the market was looking towards rising interest rates, trying to discount them. It was looking at rising inflation, uh, price inflation, and trying to discount that. So prices had fallen. And this was the reason that uh, uh, Gordon Pepper discovered that the banks always lost money when they were dealing in the gilt market. Now, mm. underlying this, I think, is another aspect which I'd like to draw to your attention. And that is that... When the basic economy starts recovering, there comes a point where money starts being sucked out of the financial sector and moved into the non-financial sector. And if the government is increasing its fiscal deficit, that money also goes into government as well. So what you have is a flow of money out of financials into government and real things. Now, that flow of money coming out is what drives prices. You will find that bond prices start falling, equity prices start falling. And the irony in all this is that when the equity prices start falling, you think, well, this is ridiculous because the outlook for equities has improved immensely. You know, business is good and all the rest of it. And brokers are saying that, um, you know, PE, forward PE ratios are falling. This is all very, very encouraging. But the reality of the situation is it's not that that drives the prices, but the money flowing out of these investments uh, being redirected into the basic economy. That is what drives the prices down. So I think we're, you know, here, we're going into 2017 and I think we're on the edge if you like, of that development. So it is a fascinating uh, time. And uh, this development was very important back in the late 60s and particularly in the 1970s, which of course was the decade when inflation eventually peaked at uh, almost hyperinflation levels. Mm -hmm. Indeed it did. So what we could see here is improving, actually improving fundamentals for buying stocks but stocks could continue to go down. We could see improving fundamentals for owning bonds as the rates go up, and yet they could continue to go down. That is, uh, rates could continue to rise and bond prices could continue to drop for some time. Is that what you're seeing, possibly? Precisely that. Now, how long this, 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 this happens, of course, um, we don't know at this stage. There are other considerations. Um, there is significant banking risk within the European Union, as we've seen with the Italian situation. And uh, it is quite possible that we get a crisis there which interrupts any cyclical considerations. Um, I, think, I think also that um, the way China is uh, developing her economy, she is um, beginning to spend massive amounts of money on commodities. Um, we're talking about base metals um, and the raw materials, if you like, that uh, industrialization generally re uh, uh, requires. And China's spending has already driven up the prices of base metals and those raw materials through 2016. That was just a question of stockpiling. She is now going to uh, begin to 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 um, uh, use her stocks of precious of sorry of base metals and 
industrial raw materials um, to develop her own economy to get away, if you like, from the reliance on uh, U.S. Um, uh, imports. You know, I mean, her exports to to, to the United States. To the States. U.S., yes. Uh-huh. Yeah. Inter- so we have a situation really where commodity prices are being driven upwards very sharply, and this is completely consistent with the end game, if you like, in the um, in, in the credit and business cycle. This is what we always see at the end of the cycle. You know, there is demand for these raw materials, and guess what? The prices then start rising. Prices for manufactured goods on the street start rising. People begin to realize that prices are rising, and therefore they change their preference away from holding money into... Uh, 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 into holding goods and buying services before they really need them. This, in a sense, is the thing that the Keynesians want to stimulate. But the problem with it is that once stimulated, it is completely beyond anyone's control without raising interest rates to a high enough level to defuse all demand, which, of course, is the, you know, the, the credit cycle of stimulate and then raise rates to, you know, when inflation gets out of uh, out of control and uh, they end up crashing the market and then trying to stop it crashing by dropping interest rates quickly again, rather like in the financial crisis that we saw uh, back um, in in uh, two thousand and seven eight nine. So um, the situation could well be short circuited, um, if you like, by the instability in the whole system. And there is another point I'd like to make, Jay, and that is. Mm-hmm. Um, when it comes to how far interest rates uh, can be raised by the Fed before triggering um, the next financial crisis, in my estimation, that level is probably in the region of a Fed funds rate of 2.5%. Only. Now, that, that's nothing. Absolutely. Only. This is a very, very important point. The reason why this is so is uh, since the last crisis, since the, at the time of the, 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 the Lehman collapse, um, the, there has been a very rapid accumulation of debt in both the public and the private sectors. The low interest rates have just encouraged corporations to borrow to enhance their earnings that way rather than by um, improving their trade, you know, their, their, um, their products and trading rather than investing in business. They've just bought back shares. Um, at the same time, private individuals have continued to spend. I mean, they've, they've had um, nothing in the way of pay rises. If you talk about ordinary people, you know, the, the ordinary guy on Main Street, um, he's actually in pretty poor shape. And he's, the only way he's managed to make ends meet is to continue to borrow and borrow and borrow. And if he's lucky enough to own a house, he's probably remortgaged it a couple of times. So you can see the level of debt um, has accumulated, and it is that that will topple over when interest rates rise and when they rise to as little as 2.5%. It is that weight of debt that is the big, big threat, in my mind, to how far this economy can go under President Trump. All right, uh, Alistair, then what I can see, if that's right, is uh, that the Fed is going to have to try to continue to pump money into the system to suppress those interest rates to, I mean, it's incredible to me. I My first mortgage was a 17.5% mortgage. That was as a result of Volcker slamming on the brakes or at least taking his foot off the gas pedal back in the, you know, in, in, in the late, in the late 70s, 1980, actually. And we saw, as you said, he broke the back of inflation, and we had, uh, you know, a horrendous 
a crash in the equity markets and the bond markets, and then that set the stage, though, for some some good years ahead of us, quite a few good years, actually. But what do you see, then, that the Fed will try to continue to put gasoline on the fire, as it were, um, or to supply liquidity into the system to, to try to suppress the the interest rates so that they can avoid this sort of a cataclysmic banking crisis? Or do you think uh, that they'll perhaps not be successful? I mean, it seems to me on the long end of the yield curve, we're seeing the T-bond in the U.S. rise dramatically. We've seen you know, interest rates in Japan and elsewhere. Uh, Italy, of course, a very sick situation there. But uh, is it in control of the Fed, I guess is my question. And do you think, what do you think the outcome will be? Because and how long do you think it will go before we reach that 2.5%? You're talking Fed funds rates, I guess, right? Yes, I'm talking Fed funds rates because that is the control that the Fed has on uh, the bank's reserves. That is what they pay the banks to keep the reserves, if you like, on the Fed's balance sheet. So to stop those reserves being um, moved out and then geared up, it, so that um, you know, bank credit is issued on the back of every dollar to the tune of ten dollars, twelve dollars, whatever, whatever yeah. the gearing they can achieve. The Fed is going to want to try and control that process, and so this is entirely consistent, I think, with the Fed's stated objective of raising interest rates over the course of 2017 in three or four steps. Now, what we don't know. Jay, is um, what the Fed's analysis of the debt situation is. Have they come up with the same sort of level that um, I have come up with, and that mm. is a Fed funds rate of 2.5% could be enough to um, uh, collapse the whole system? I don't know they have thought, I don't know that, that, that they have thought that through. I would guess that what they will do is they will raise it um, as they think is necessary because they need to normalize rates. That is absolutely clear. Uh -huh. Going back to what I said earlier, um, the, the expansion of bank credit tells us that the U.S. economy is actually performing quite well. It is no mm -hmm. longer appropriate to have suppressed interest rates. So they need to normalize it and they'll try and normalize it gradually in a number of baby steps. But what we don't know is... Have they actually thought how far they can go along there uh, in that direction before they create difficulties for themselves with um, uh, bad debts beginning to hit the bank's balance sheets? I, my guess is that the way they would approach it is rather than think of a level in the way that I have just described, they would probably um, suck it and see, raise the rates another quarter, leave it for a couple of months, see, see what happens. If there is still demand for money, if, the money, if, if reserves are still coming off the Fed's balance sheet and going back into the, balance, uh, into the uh, banking system, the commercial banking system, raise the interest rates another quarter of a percent. I think that's going to be their approach. And uh -huh. unwittingly, unwittingly, I think when the Fed funds rate gets to two and a half percent, and remember that on a rise like that, you will find that the lower quality debt, uh, the cost of refinancing that, won't just rise by 2%, it will probably rise by 5 or 6% or 7 or 8%. So the risky loans on a, a relatively small rise in the Fed funds rate actually uh, become destabilized a lot earlier than you would think. And there is, of course, another, another aspect to this, and that is the Fed is going to be looking at the way price inflation develops, and they will see 
because of the raw materials and the, co- the, the, the industrial commodity complex, as it were, all those prices feeding through, they will see that the combination of that and the, the fiscal stimulation that, uh, pr- that President Trump uh, applies to the U.S. economy, at that stage, they'll start thinking, hold on a minute, it does look like inflation is going up to over 4%. Now, that being the case, we better do something about this and raise interest rates a bit more quickly. <laughs> and I think this is, this is going to be the big tussle, if you like, in 2017. Do you think we'll get to that point in 2017, Alistair? We could easily. Um, I mean, I, I, I would normally say that this sort of process would last a good 18 months, maybe a bit longer. But because of the dynamics of the situation and plus um, the likelihood that uh, the political and economic developments in Europe uh, could have a major global effect um, on fiat currencies, um, I would not really be all that confident about saying that this this is going to last a full two years. It might it, we could well have a crisis this year um, if if um, things start developing a little more rapidly than people expect. All right, let's take a look then at what that might mean for the markets. Let's take a look. Uh, I, I guess what you're saying is you're, you're bearish then on stocks and bonds, uh, at least to start with uh, the start of the year until we reach that point that you're talking right. about, that critical 2.5% on the Fed funds rate. That's pretty consistent with Michael Oliver's technical views that he expressed earlier in the show. Uh, so bearish on stocks and bonds, I take it, at least for now, in the early early part or through this year. Uh, what about commodities and bullish, I guess, right? And, and the same for precious metals. Yes, commodities um, bullish. The, the way I would rather um, people looked at this is not so much the commodity prices rising, though there will be demand for these commodities. As I said, China is more or less cornering the global market in these things uh, to satisfy its current five-year and the next five-year plan. Um, but the other way I would look at it is that uh, actually the purchasing power of paper currencies is going down. And that, mm-hmm. I think, is key. That's a key part of the understanding of what's going on. All right. Um, you mentioned briefly um, the threat to the banking system. Uh, I was talking to a senior executive of a main uh, of a major financial institution here in New York over the weekend, and he's pretty confident right now that at least the American banks are in pretty good shape. Their equity positions are strong, uh, quite strong from by historical standards, according to him anyway. Uh, Italy, not so much, he, he uh, admits. Uh, but clearly there does seem to be, I mean, there's talks in now, it's actually written into policy, I believe, bail-ins. So the next time there's a financial crisis, they're going to start to take money from depositors. Um, and so people should be thinking about, I think they should be thinking about getting their money out of the banking system to the extent they're able to, uh, or at least to a great extent, and buy gold. And I know that you're involved with gold money. With uh, a couple of minutes left, could you talk to our listeners a little bit about the products uh, that gold money has that people might avail themselves to to protect themselves against uh, the potential of, of losses uh, through the banking system? Yes, sure. Um very, very, very simply, um, we have set up gold money uh, so that it can be used as money uh, to re- replace the fiat currencies when the fiat currencies go down the tubes. Uh, 
And uh, we run um, what we call the personal account, which is transactions. You can use them with um, a preloaded card, which unfortunately has to preload into <laughs> into uh, fiat currency. But sure. basically, you keep the bulk of your uh, of 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 your um, deposit, as it were, in gold, and just you know just load your card as you need it. And incidentally, you own the deposit. This is this is fundamentally different yeah, from having exactly. a deposit in, in, in a bank. You actually own the gold deposit, and you can tell us which vault you want that deposit to be in. We've also got a, a, a business line, which basically allows businesses to run their accounts in gold and to be paid in gold. Uh, and there are quite a number of uh, different um, uh areas where that is of interest. I mean, the mines, for example, who are mining gold, um, their liabilities, if you like, in terms of their balance sheet, um, you know, should match the gold price. So as much as possible, um, I can see that they will be moving in the direction of using uh, uh, gold as their fundamental unit of account. Mm-hmm. And then we've got the wealth uh, side. And the wealth side basically is um, a facility. It's the old gold money side, as right. it were, the original gold money that was set up by James Turk. And there uh, you can accumulate for your own account. Again, it's your property um, stored in a vault of your choosing. Um, and you can have it delivered to you if you want. Um, obviously, the delivery charges. But basically, that's gold, silver, platinum, and palladium. So that you've oh. got the choice of the four precious metals. All right, Alistair. We're going to have to we're going to have to leave it go at that, Alistair. I, I want to thank you very much for being with us. Happy New Year to you, and uh, we'll look to do it again sometime soon. I hope. Um, anyway, thank you so much for being with us, folks. That is all the time we have for this week. Next week, David Stockman will be my guest, and uh, I think Michael Oliver as well. Uh, perhaps someone else I'm forgetting, but we will have uh, we'll be back with you next week. So we hope to to have you with us again. Until then, goodbye and God's blessings to you. Thank you again for listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with Jay Taylor. Please join us again next Tuesday at noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Dynasert is a global leader in carbon emission reduction technologies. Created for use in diesel engines, the hydrogen unit has been proven to reduce carbon emissions by up to 40%, increase torque, improve engine oil quality, and provide up to 19% in fuel savings. Our leading-edge technology is designed for tractor trailers, rail, marine, and newly developed for diesel engine cars. Reducing the amount of greenhouse gases provides benefits to the environment, to communities and businesses, and to our shareholders.